In therapy, radically genuine is reached when one is being truly authentic, communicating freely and openly as equals. The Radically Genuine podcast strives to do just that. We will question areas of mental health, culture, societal norms, and what is truly needed to improve the lives of others. Dr. Roger McFillin is a clinical psychologist and board certified in behavioral and cognitive psychology. He is the executive director of the Center for Integrated Behavioral Health in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. Welcome to the Radically Genuine Podcast. I am Dr. Roger McFillin. 66% of Americans are on a prescription drug. Nationally, 42% of American adults are obese. 20% of all children are obese. The number of antidepressant prescriptions over the past six to seven years continues to increase at a dramatic rate. 35% between the years of 2015-16 to 2021-2022. Close to 83.4 million American prescriptions for antidepressants. That's close to 20% of all Americans now are on some psychiatric drug. We see a startling increase in suicide for youth over the previous decade a five-fold increase among 10 to 12-year-olds, young children. And this was prior to the pandemic. Majority overdosing on prescription drugs. The rate of suicide for ages 10 to 24 increased nearly 60% between 2007 and 2018, according to the CDC. If clinical psychologists and the general mental health field. If our primary purpose through both research and treatment is to ease suffering, improve quality of life, improve health, assist people in overcoming life's challenges, then we must take an honest look at how effective the mental health field has actually become. To do that, I've decided to put together a roundtable discussion of clinical psychologists for today's podcast. I've got three outstanding clinical psychologists that I'm proud to call both colleagues and friends. And I respect their opinions greatly, as well as their effectiveness. And so I'd like to Go around the table. If you could just introduce yourself, uh, your background, your uh, your credentials, areas of expertise. Hi, I'm Susan Hannon. I have my PhD in clinical psychology. Um, I'm also an assistant professor at Lafayette College. Um, I've been working here at the center since ooh, it was right before COVID. I think I started in maybe February of 2020. Time is weird. I I can't remember a lot of that now. But yeah, I've been working here for a little while. I'm also the director of clinical research here. Welcome. And to the fans of the podcast, it's a familiar voice. Dr. Susan Hannon has been on the podcast previously, once where we talked about overcoming post-traumatic stress and what we know about the research literature, as well as 
one or more one of our more popular podcast episodes the mental benefits of doing hard things thank you for joining thanks for having me hi i'm dr agnes lunda I earned my PsyD in combined school and clinical psychology from Kane University in 2016. I then completed my postdoctoral residency here at the Center for Integrated Behavioral Health. So I've been working with Riz and Roger for, uh, it'll be seven years <laughs> in August. Um, I'm board certified in uh, cognitive and behavioral psychology, and I'm the director here of be uh, dialectical behavior therapy. Thank you, Dr. Linda. If you go back, uh, previously to a podcast, Dr. Linda joined us where we had an extensive conversation on dialectical behavior therapy, but she also has a very broad range of expertise in um, different clinical uh, treatments and uh, is highly effective therapist, one of the more highly effective therapists that I've been around for multiple reasons. Not only does she have a, a, just a great calming demeanor, as you can hear from her voice, she has got a great radio voice, mm -hmm. but she is a, a committed scholar and uh, certainly has devoted a lot of her, her career to learning about what works, and we hope to tap into that today. And I'm uh, Dr. Riz Ahmed. I got my PsyD at Widener University in clinical psychology, uh, completed my postdoctoral residency here at the Center for Integrated Behavioral Health in 2015. Uh, currently am the clinical director at the practice I am involved in the Dialectical Behavior Therapy Program for Adolescents. Uh, my expertise is primarily in adolescents and young adults. Uh, and for those who don't know, the DBT program is typically for adolescents who are uh, have multiple presenting problems, often high degrees of suicidality and self-harm. So uh, that that's my niche. And Dr. Ahmad has been critical in the, the training program here at Center for Integrated Behavioral Health, where we have a postdoctoral residency program and doctor level externship. He's an incredible teacher. I think he melds well between the art and the science of psychotherapy in a way to engage in a building relationships, but understanding uh, problems within context. He's patient, he's kind, he's well-read and uh, highly effective. So it's a pleasure to have you on the, on the podcast today. Thanks for having me. I don't think we can start off this discussion without taking a, kind of an honest look at American society currently. Uh, the question that I often ponder myself is like there are our current mental health crisis, and I think that's an appropriate word for some of the statistics that we've been looking at. It is it in many ways just a a consequence of uh, the sick culture and society that we we live in. I'm just curious to maybe do some examination into what the three of you may look at as factors that are kind of influencing our kind of our depressed way of, of living and, and dependence on, on substances. Where do we start? There's so many avenues we can go down. I mean, the first thing that comes to mind is this culture of uh, immediate gratification and wanting things to be a certain way every second of the day. And when those things are not so, and we're not getting what we want right away, then cue the medications and drugs and quick fixes. If I can piggyback off of that, um, because I think what I'm thinking relates pretty closely to what you're saying, this lack of faith in self mm -hmm. and this 
belief that I need to turn to something external, whether it's a medication, and sometimes medications might be useful, but a medication, uh, food, mm-hmm. anything, right, that then communicates to the individual that they don't have inside of them enough to handle whatever is in front of them. I think we're, we're also a society that loves our experts and celebrities. That's who we tout and who we look up to. And for a long time, I feel like our experts in the field have driven down this dark road where maybe they don't want to admit or don't have enough to admit that they're going the wrong direction. And maybe you got some people in the passenger seat who are hopefully screaming louder and louder that's going the wrong direction. But for a while, we've been committed to this idea of diseases and identifying distress and difficulty in life as wrong and diseases and pathological. And when you believe that about life, then you are going to look to some kind of fix to fix what's broken or wrong. Um, And it's going to be disappointing when it doesn't actually work out. You just look for what's next. I agree. There, There certainly is a seeking of immediate gratification. And maybe a... And I, and I don't necessarily know all the origins, and maybe we can talk about this, how this message has been sold to people around what is happiness and what is life. Right? It, it almost seems like it's been a, manufa- a purposely manufactured idea of what it means to be living. And we certainly underestimate the trials and tribulations that exist over the course of a lifespan. And so when they inevitably do happen, it appears to me, and challenge me if I'm wrong, that major industries are using that as an opportunity to try to sell people something. It could be a diagnosis and a drug, but it also could be other things to provide that Band-Aid or that quick fix, right? If you wear the newest shoes or the newest clothes, then, you know, then that's going to be able to provide you this uh, sense of value and importance. It's so many things are materialistic that ultimately lead to, a, I think, a sense of emptiness. Right, like it's not even like a Band-Aid. It's they're trying to sell this delusion of if you purchase this or do this, you could achieve this mm-hmm. constant state of happiness or euphoria, this like constant state of bliss, which... Like we live in the land of relativity, right? We live, at least our perception of is of dualism, right? Like we know happiness because of sadness. We know pain because we know what it's like to not be in pain. And so it's, right, it's just this illusion of you can be at this constant state all the time when, how is that even possible? Well, you can't be because then you're manic. <laughs> so then you have another problem yeah. that needs to be solved. Yeah, yeah. And The thing that really bothers me is the people who that's marketed to are going to be having a really difficult time in their life at the moment. Mm -hmm. And it's almost everybody at some point in their life. So probably all of us at some point have had some time where we don't know what the point is of it all or how to make meaning of life or how to make meaning of pain. And it's at those moments, which do happen a lot, especially in teenage and young adult years, that all of a sudden it becomes this promise that 
hey, if you if you look a certain way, if you take this, if you change that, that that's what the point is. That's that's what will make you feel good about the rest of your life. Every time I drive in to work, I pass a couple of billboards for like a plastic surgery mm-hmm. place. I don't know if you've seen these billboards mm-hmm. on 309, 378. It's these uh, promises that like nip tuck is going to be the thing that makes it really happy. Let's start a GoFundMe. Let's open up some, let's get some new billboards out there. <laughs> <laughs> right. It's like it, we're reinforced to believe that we have to constantly keep chasing this carrot. It's like, okay, well now that I got this, for your example, the plastic surgery, like that's going to fix everything. And then you realize like, oh, nope, that was a dead end. And so it's like, what's the next thing? What's the next thing? My concern is things like mindfulness are being sold the same way now, right? Just practice mindfulness by this app or buy this DVD set and you'll master mindfulness and feel so happy, which is totally antithetical to what mindfulness actually is. Yep. So I think we we can agree that there's a cultural problem that exists. And when I talk about culture, I can probably refer to maybe all of Western society because there's a number of things that we certainly, if you examine cross-culturally, that, um, you know, it's, it's not necessarily similar. So let me, let me take a step back. Back in the early 90s, when Eli Lilly was attempting to try to develop a market for antidepressant drugs for children and adolescents, so fluoxetine, which is commonly known as Prozac, in the European countries, they didn't believe that there was a market for child and adolescents for antidepressant drugs because depression was not really identified as a childhood disorder. Uh, it was rare. It was a rare occurrence. So was suicide. And the prevailing viewpoint at the time is when children and teens were really struggling, it was a result of the environment conditions environmental conditions in which they were raised in. So whether that would be abuse and neglect, um, poverty, and so forth. So to identify them as, as, a, as depressed, as a medical disorder that started to be kind of developed that period of time, nobody really believed that it was... Now, there was a market for it. And you saw that this rise in advertising dollars throughout the 90s into the 2000s of identifying this idea of a clinical depression in children and teens is a precursor to later substance abuse and mental illness. So it's the idea that was undiagnosed and untreated. Clinical depression in a vulnerable age range is, was a contributing factor to later mental illness. And I believe a lot of people probably remain ignorant to the historical background of all this, unless you kind of grew up in that period of time, even I, who was growing up in that period of time, didn't recognize it because I was young. It only now through my research back is understanding how nefarious this kind of conditioning process was culturally to identify mental illness uh, in a way that represents normative reactions in behavior. And so my question is, for us, because we're going to talk about the future of the mental health field, is where have we, and I say we, as clinical psychologists, played a role 
in perpetuating a lot of these false ideas and false beliefs to the point where this mental health industrial kind of complex is now a major player in the maintaining of human misery and distress. I mean, I can jump in and I appreciate your use of the word we, because I think we all in a way are complicit might be a bit dramatic, but yeah, I mean, complicit in this, right? We're all part of this system. And I, I, I've been reflecting on this a lot recently. Um, like personally, I think my lack of like critical thinking skills, um, especially in grad school, it's so funny. I'll, you know, people will look at my credentials and say like, oh, you have a PhD. And now sometimes I'll say something like, sometimes I think my PhD made me more dumb. Mm. <laughs> and that might sound ridiculous, but my, and, and this isn't a crack at my graduate program. I think a lot of graduate programs were similar, but they conditioned me to think there is one right way to treat someone. Like cognitive behavioral therapy is the way to go. And any other school of therapy you could be doing harm or it's not effective or it's not empirically supported. And th there might be kernels of truth to what they were saying there. And I think the intentions were good, but I can certainly reflect back on my own experience and how I just kind of took what my professor said at face value and didn't critically analyze where that information was coming from. And that includes the DSM. I learned a little bit about the, history of the development of the DSM in graduate school, but not nearly what I've learned over the past couple of years, like especially working here. Um, so, I mean, I'm, again, I'm just reflecting on my own self, but I think for me, what's perpetuated it is I, I somehow along the way, like lost my critical thinking skills and I, I'm, I'm happy I've gotten those back, but. So there's certainly an avenue I want to go down, but I think, so what you're mentioning is there are two major areas. One, the development of the diagnostical statistical manual is the manufacturing of mental illness based on restricted categories. So we're not necessarily looking about things in context or individual differences or the impact of culture or society we're, we're we're making it a checklist similar to that of how a medical professional would be trained in trying to identify a disease and that shifted and altered the manner in which we viewed the human experience it's brand new and it and it arrived in a time where they believed that they could identify mental illness as a brain disorder and they highlighted a f very few neurochemicals as part of being implicated in the process. We now know that there is there never has been science to be able to identify that. We're talking about billions and billions kind of dedicated to trying to identify it in that way, and it's been very much abandoned. But the idea, the belief that what you may be experiencing internally, and we don't have this ability to compare ourselves to others in that way. I can't... I can't, I don't understand exactly what Susan Hannon might feel or Agnes Linda might think. I can only make sense of that through what I experience internally or, try, or my own powers of human connection or empathy. So it lends itself to an intention into our own internal experience through the lens of what we learn in society. So if you're told what you feel is not normal, or you told it's a medical condition or a disease. 
the lens in which you examine the entire experience becomes biased. And it starts with that DSM. Because when we were in graduate school, we, were, we became trained like a medical scientist. Although there's historic precedents that throughout centuries, there's all different types of philosophical wisdom, right? There's cross-cultural wisdom. We still were in the manner in which the APA creates competencies for clinical psychologists. It still is very strongly rooted in kind of a more of a biomedical model than a, than a true biopsychosocial spiritual model. And that begins and ends with how pathology is identified and how it is taught. And then the development of empirically validated treatments that are standardized. And as we well know, it's nearly impossible to standardize something for each individual. Uh, it, it, it leads to really poor research, poor outcomes, and very difficult to generalize it to an entire population. Does that share some of your, your viewpoints? Absolutely. Yeah. And I know you've talked about the development of the DSM on this podcast before, but I think it's worth re-mentioning just how few people were on that task force that truly developed the DSM. That was a decision made by a small group of people. Yeah. I was actually in grad school at the time where they made the transition from DSM-4 to DSM-5. And I think I was really fortunate in my training. It was highly focused on third wave behavioral therapies like ACT and DBT. And we were taught to really doubt the psychiatry, the psychiatric model and the, the drugs. And that all kind of fizzled out when you'd go out into the field. So all of that training we were getting, all the messages we were getting, that was not being communicated when we'd go out on externships or internships. So even if your training is solid, you're still getting exposed to it in a different way. And in our training, we had a lot of discussions about like who's making these decisions in the DSM, who's funding these decisions. Where did PMDD come from? Right, the post or the premenstrual dysphoric disorder? Like, what the hell is that? So I think I was fortunate in that way, but it's definitely not the attitude that I encountered from supervisors out in the field. Yeah, certainly not the norm. Um, however, I'll, I would even say though, when we talk about packages, and I'm board certified in cognitive behavioral psychology. And at the time, I was certainly a person who believed in the empirical process, scientific process. I still do. I think when, when applied with, uh, with ethics and a scientific mindset, it protects people from harm. But the scientific process isn't one of um, where we come to a conclusion and uh, this is the answer. That's rarely the case when it comes to science because science evolves. And it, it evolves through consistent debate and replication. And once you continue to replicate research, you continue to grow new ideas. And the openness around scientific debate and inquiry is a natural aspect of the process. So going back to third wave you know, behavioral treatments, which I certainly see their utility and rely on them quite greatly. It is, again, a, a Western world, American culture's repackaging mm -hmm. of Eastern philosophies 
Buddhism, mm-hmm. and other concepts. And how do they get repackaged? They get repackaged as a, a treatment that is standardized. And then people build careers around them. In fact, they must build a career. You have to publish or perish and to be able to survive in academia and write books and have labs. But there are, a lot of them are repackaged ideas, mm-hmm. useful in their own right, but in that kind of materialistic, capitalistic culture in which we live in, it's just repackaging something over again as a psychological treatment instead of what I would be much more interested in is, is the the application of various philosophies in order to live well. I think to some extent it got repackaged to put it into a form that they feel like Western society could could accept. Mm-hmm. You know, like mindfulness is something that's too woo-woo-y and out there to accept in a hard science. So you have to create mindfulness-based stress reduction as a program and a protocol and um, have it be something that is something you can do a randomized controlled trial on, and that's the gold standard for seeing if something works or doesn't work. But that, that all comes from the medical field. You know, that all comes from that being the lens that is seen as the gold standard to look at everything through. And I think you're right. I think it goes back to the DSM and that being seen as the Bible of psychiatry, right? That's what it's called. When Susan was talking, I was reflecting on my own experience, and you put some words on it that I hadn't quite put on it, but I really did feel like I was supposed to be a passive sponge in graduate school and learn all the information from the powers that be that have all this knowledge. And it was always conveyed with such like confidence that this is a legitimate diagnosis, this is the legitimate treatments that work. And there's something very unscientific about that. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> when you look at all the science... There's tons of uncertainty. There's tons of comorbidity in these diagnoses. It should be presented with so much tentativeness and so much respect for how complex the thing you're trying to study actually is and how many variables there are in play to the human experience. And and it was, and it was almost presented with this, what I now see as kind of like a false air of confidence that if you don't have all the facts, um, maybe that uncertainty is really unsettling and you try to present it as with this air of expertise around it. And the entire DSM looks like that to me. It's the air of expertise around the major depressive disorder when there are no biomarkers, no lab tests, no imaging, nothing to even identify it as a thing besides someone's subjective viewpoint. And you go to multiple professionals, you can get three to five different, seven, whoever knows how many different diagnoses. And then to talk about that as being like very confident just felt very now I see as very false, but I was not thinking about clearly at the time. And we've seen this play out, certainly medically. We're in a, a point right now where during the pandemic, everyone was kind of adhering to the public health authority. And the public health authority communicated in such a way as if science was clearly identified and established, which I was so concerned about because obviously we didn't know a lot about the safety and efficacy of long-term uses of uh, mRNA, what ultimately is a gene therapy, got repackaged as a, a vaccination. We now know that didn't have any qualities of, uh, of what a, a vaccine actually does and being able to prevent the, the illness or the spread of the illness. But the authority is what is concerning because it is that same training that uh, I think plays itself out for a blind trust of whoever is in 
a position of that authority to be able to communicate what is the right way in order to do things. And we saw censoring then of, of alternative voices. In the mental health field, that identification of what are gold standard treatments is kind of similar. And I was really appalled when I looked into the, the uh, in great depth about the limitations of gold standard treatments. And we're, we're a practice here that took a scientific approach. We do outcome research when we can, kind of everyone is an N of one, where we kind of try to examine from multiple variables, was there a successful response to the treatment? Ultimately, is the person living a higher quality of life in some way? And did they achieve the goals that they set out? I don't want to have a treatment that's 60% effective. And we're going to look at those things in those gold standards of, you know, good 40% of times people don't achieve the necessary, if we even want to call it symptom reduction, let alone improvement in quality of life. When it comes to these psychiatric drugs that are widely dispelled as if they're evidence-based treatment, the science around it is highly concerning. They barely, if ever, outperform placebo. In fact, one would probably argue any response to them is only placebo in nature, but they come with such adverse health effects. So we're seeing various treatments trying to fit the RCT, uh, randomized clinical control trials, and using that as a kind of a gold standard with whether something is efficacious. And, you know, I, I walk away and there's an illusion of what's evidence-based medicine and there's an illusion of evidence-based psychotherapy. That's not to deny that there aren't some uh, mechanisms that we learn through, not only through RCTs, but through kind of decades potentially of, uh, of psychological research and centuries of, of wisdom. What does it take for somebody to overcome episodes in their life? But we limit the discussion when we talk about something as a, just a gold standard and you should implement treatment in such a limited way. At last count, there were over 250 different schools of psychotherapy, each with its own ideas about why people act in self-defeating or self-destructive ways or ways which bring them emotional or, or even physical pain and how to help them stop whatever behavior exists. We are in such the infancy in this field such infancy that it's like step back and have a uh, just some degree of self-awareness about how little we know and learn from the people that are in front of you to help better inform this field. And so I am interested in throwing the question out there about um, what do we actually know? What works? I have my own thoughts to talk about how people are actually helped, my own experiences, and I want to share them, but I, I'm interested from an academic standpoint, from direct clinical experience, from what you read, from what you understand deeply within yourself. How do we navigate a therapy or a treatment to help people overcome what amounts to sometimes debilitating episodes of emotional despair. I mean, I can speak a little bit more to, I guess, the science behind randomized controlled trials, RCTs. I think for me, 
one of the biggest issues or the biggest issues with RCTs isn't necessarily just the methodology, but it's what exactly is it that we're measuring? So we say that the outcome is depression. What is that? So many of these RCTs are using line-by-line symptom criteria from the DSM. That doesn't mean that that's what depression is. And so even if in these RCTs we see a reduction rate of 60% or 80% of depression symptoms, it's depression symptoms according to the DSM, which as we just talked about earlier, was decided by a small group of people. So that's what I academically struggle with in terms of RCTs. I, I do think that they can have their benefit. I think that there have been some really exceptional treatments like dialectical behavior therapy that we wouldn't have it if it didn't start with these these trials. So I, I'm I'm not certainly sitting here just, you know, trying to knock them completely. Mm. Can I say something about the third wave treatments? And this is an, a new thought that I've been having recently. Treatments like dialectical behavior therapy and acceptance and commitment therapy, they're, they're so experiential. Mm-hmm. And for, for so long, I didn't understand that. And I, I knew the material concepts, whatever you want to call it, intellectually, like up here in my brain. But I didn't really get it in my body, if that makes any sense. And my level of therapy changed drastically when I started to understand it on an experiential level. Almost I had the thought, like, should I have been doing this before? Like when I didn't really get it. I I finally understood, I think, why with, I think it's like old school psychoanalysis, why the students had to go through their own analysis for years, I think, before or even maybe while they were conducting therapy. Because understanding it in your head and getting it experientially are so, they're very different things. And that's really changed my level of therapy, I would say, my delivery. I know those were two like different things that I'm talking about there, but that's where I'm at right now. I was thinking along the same lines when Roger asked the question about what actually helps people and what works. And what helps me too is firstly normalizing emotion normalizing being a human and having a whole range of emotion that come and go throughout the day. And that happiness is not some state to achieve, but it's just one of the experiences that we feel as humans. And then understanding that the stuff our brain is telling us is bullshit. It's not real, right? It's just a sensation that our brain does. And it's, it's, it has a purpose. It has a role, but the things my brain tells me, like, I don't know, you suck at what you do. I don't think that's a fact, but my brain can convince me it is. And I think that helped me tremendously, and it definitely helps the people I work with, both of those things. All right, let me just summarize, because I think the the two of you brought two incredible points that we're going to have to build on. So one, when you use the word experiential, we mean attention to and the allowing of the experience. So that is feeling emotions versus trying to distract from them, control them, avoid their presentation, suppress them. They're there to serve us. Emotions are here to serve us. So your presentation and allowance of them serves multiple functions. We are incredibly resilient as human beings. And so 
uh, if our emotions are not are going to be something that we make room for and we can understand and allow them to serve us, if we are suppressing or we are avoiding or we're distracting, imagine all the things we have to engage in to do that. That could be drugs. That could be alcohol. That could be food. That could be self-injury. And it's not like those emotions fit nicely into some compartment that we can shut away. We know that they can affect us on multiple levels, including our health, our immune system, um, our sleep, all things that are necessarily, necessary foundations of, of health, that it doesn't work that we can suppress our emotions. So therapy that actually allows for that experience tends to be very productive, that therapeutic aspect of that. Doesn't necessarily mean you need to go into professional mental health treatment to be able to do that. I agree. But the necessary aspect of creating a lifestyle around it, and sometimes with a trained professional, if you've learned other things in your life, and let's face it, there's been a lot of messages both culturally and within family that can inform somebody to cope in one particular way. And then the second thing that you mentioned, which was critically important, and we've mentioned this on this podcast, is this idea that we are creators of our own reality. So the way the mind works is it creates stories. It makes judgments, evaluations. It interprets the world through a certain lens. And without the ability to diffuse from that, it becomes your truth. Mm-hmm. And if, that, if your mind is telling you you are less than, you are not good enough, you're ugly, you're dumb, or whatever, then that becomes the world in which you live. And so the emotional consequences connected to that story can be profoundly sad and anxiety-provoking. So being able to learn the skills, to notice that story, to diffuse from it, not easy, especially if you were treated a certain way in your life or some adverse consequences. Uh, conditions or experiences which were very very painful I, I love those two ideas we can build off of that what's what you got my mind going on is it's interesting how there's so much intellectual clutter that I feel like I had to work through to understand some of those things that the way I've been trained and maybe the way our culture is is that the more intellectual the more you think about things the more you'll figure things out and so if your mind is saying certain things to you, then you need to like wrestle with that thought and get deeper into it and figure out what the right way to think is. And I remember um, I once went through like a formal meditation training a couple times and there was a teacher who was uh, telling me because I was like grappling with what the point is of all this and how this works and what's going to... And he, he's like, you're trying to clean up dirt with a dirty cloth. <laughs> 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 they love their metaphors. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's that idea. I think when you when you guys talk about some of these things, they just like intuitively at a gut level just make common sense. And so much what I've been taught that doesn't work when I'm working with a client in a way and it gets too like heady and intellectual and philosophical and when this when this other world, it just at a gut level doesn't sit for change and how change happens. It's just not emotionally resonating. And in some ways, uh, like spirituality and religion and other really important developmental experiences have been like ahead of the curve on that. Like there is an emotional resonance to things that create profound changes for people. And um, 
psychology has to catch up and not become overly intellectualized and thinky or we just get our clients more stuck. Yeah, when you when you read spirituality or previous cultures and the way that they approach living, that word balance is often communicated in different ways, whether it's through um, chakras or energy or just uh, your, your connection and, and, and faith to, uh, to beyond this world or just your approach to exercise, health, and helping others. When you're out of balance, whatever that means to be out of balance, these, uh, we tend not to feel well, right? Um, and I know when I'm not out of, when I'm out of balance, there's certain things that in my life are not in order. You know, my, my priorities have to be around giving my family, my personal health, and my continued intellectual growth in my work. So if my mind gets focused on other things or I'm not sleeping well or I'm not eating well, everything kind of interacts in a, in a way that can create problems. And I question whether the modern healthcare system and modern healthcare system, mental health care system in general, is integrative enough to be able to achieve the balance. So in our, I call it our, our health, our sick care system, because it's not a system that promotes health, it's one that treats disease. We have all these subspecialties that work in isolation with small parts of the system when in actuality we're one whole, right? We're all energy. We're one whole. Everything affects the other. So one drug or medicine can affect how the entire system reacts and responds. So we are not as integrated as a society. We are, we're like, it's like a mechanism. It's like, it's a mechanical system where each individual provider tries to focus on only the parts that they know and not the whole. It reminded me of what you were asking about what is it about us as a culture that may contribute to that. And we've been such like an assembly line kind of culture. Like, we, I don't know if it's the industrial influence or what is a society and productivity, but we're so much about compartmentalizing things, breaking things apart, subspecialties, just you feel like you're on a conveyor belt sometimes. Mm -hmm. That's why my wife hates seeing doctors. She feels like a, like a product going down an assembly line. Mm -hmm. It's exactly what it yeah. is. Yeah. It's this protocol-driven healthcare world, um, which is where this is the illusion of evidence-based medicine. Uh, the idea that the same intervention can be widely applied to the entire human race is fundamentally ignorant and not science-based, but we, we buy it, hook, line, and sinker. We actually have convinced ourselves that we're in the mecca of progress and health outcomes here in the United States. It is such a disillusionment. When you look at all statistics, we would, it's very clearly that it's, that's not the case at all. We are very, very sick as a, as a society. And our infant mortality rate is sit somewhere in the middle of quote unquote developed countries. So that by all measurable uh, data, we are, uh, we are a sick society. I think in the, the first time since they've tracked life expectancy, it's actually going down. It's decreasing. Yes. Yeah. I, I think we can't sit here and say that we are advancing 
where, where there's not really progress. We're more divided. People feel more sick. We're experiencing negative emotions at a higher rate and level than, uh, you know, other points in recorded history. Although you would think that the quality of life is easier because of there are so many luxuries that are available to us, but yet we're not happier. What is happening? As you were speaking, I was just thinking, how are we defining these things? Like progress in what? Advancement in what? Like what, what are our values here? What's the goal? Advancing in like having big fancy houses and expensive cars and all of these materialistic things. Sure, that makes sense because we live in a capitalistic society that values production and work. Um, but advancing in spiritual growth connection to everything connection to the universe and nature i think you hear so few of those conversations because at least from my perspective societally that's not often what the focus is the challenge i've encountered is when speaking to not only clients but people i know in my life is when they say you know i'm, I'm depressed and i ask about well are you exercising? Are you eating well, sleeping? Are you seeing people that you love? And the answers are no. And I suggest, well, why don't you start doing that? The answer I get is I can't because I'm depressed. <laughs> A vicious cycle. <laughs> yeah. This failure to recognize that because you are missing those things in your life, you are feeling a certain way. This is quite adaptive. Your body is trying to tell you something. And I think we've been so conditioned and socialized to believe that we are defective. There's something wrong with me and my brain that even if I start doing these things, I'm still going to quote unquote be depressed. I, I tend to wonder if we overcomplicate a lot of things. That if, if we sit and we just examine human needs, what are human needs at a basic level? Food. Water. Shelter. Okay. For sur that's survival. Okay, so yes, let's imagine you have those things. Then what are human needs from that point forward in order to live well? Connection. Sense of meaning or purpose. Well, and what do we mean by live well? <laughs> <laughs> Not to throw that in there, but <laughs> like, the however the person defines as live well. I, I do. I think living well means, you know, feeling good. Right. There's this. I, most people who come in to see us aren't feeling well, so they're overwhelmed by despair and distress in some way. So then what's conversely, what, what's you know, what is the opposite of that? What does living well mean? Well, I think that you've mentioned a couple things. The experience of love and connection and purpose, how much of the presenting problems that walk into your office are related to the absence of those two things, love and purpose, that it creates a crisis within the individual. That's painful and it's empty and it's lonely. Now, certainly we'll see the, the behaviors that somebody does to escape that experience, drugs or cutting or wanting to end their life. But at its core, 
aren't we looking at those two areas, purpose and love? Yeah, and I would um, even broaden out what we're saying when we're saying love and connectedness because you could be thinking about um, you know, people in your life who you feel really connected to and having a relationship like that. But people can also get that sense of belonging and love from connections with, with nature, mm-hmm. with bigger purposes and what they're here for, uh, with themselves, like people's relationship to themselves. And I feel like so many people, because of everything else we talked about, about how you view your own internal experiences and what people have been conditioned to believe, you, you either lose your relationship with yourself and you feel detached, like I have no idea why I feel the way I feel, who I am, my, my identity, what I'm about, or you even form this really monstrous view of yourself. Uh, I'm horrible. Uh, you know, I hate myself. I'm the worst that's ever existed. And that, that's also a lack of connection. You're walking around in your body with yourself all the time, feeling either disconnected or animosity towards yourself. Can I jump in real quick? I think, at least from my experience with clients, sometimes it's so hard to even get to those core issues, if that's what you want to call it, because they cling so tightly to the narrative or the identity of I am depressed, I am anxious. And that's definitely fed from our culture, pharmaceutical companies. And what I've been thinking about lately, even the word anxiety is a judgment label. Because there's something underneath that. It's sensations in the body, maybe a rapid uh, increase in heart rate or a tightness in your chest. And then we add this label of anxiety, which is a judgment, on top of that. And now we have like a billion dollar industry to try to get rid of that. And I'm not denying suffering and pain. Of course, there is enormous pain and suffering. Um, but these these concepts of anxiety, depression, they're concepts. And we've... We've judged emotional pain and suffering to be something that is disordered. Mm-hmm. But is it? It's there for a reason. Yeah. There, it would not be there if there wasn't some reason it was there. And I often think like the times in my life where that's been more of a persistent feeling. My job in that time has been to figure out what is that feeling trying to communicate? Why is it there? What is it that has led into it? And... Often those have also been the times in my life where I've made like pretty profound lifestyle changes or pretty profound yes. changes in perspective that, that it drove me towards. And it's weird you can look back on it, you know, years or decades later and be like, yeah, I'm kind of kind of thankful I sat with all that discomfort and tried to figure out why I felt this way when I was living a life I'd been told I was supposed to enjoy or supposed to feel successful for. Um, I mean, there's, there's a lot of growth that I think comes out of that. If I could create a pill and give it to each one of you and you swallow the pill and you will never feel emotional pain, despair, or suffering ever again, would you take it? Absolutely not. Why not? I think going back to what we were talking about earlier, that would get so boring because we, we live in relativity. That's just how this world works. Like as a human being, that's how I experience the world. And so maybe initially it might, quote, feel good. But then I, I think you would just feel flat then because you would, you, we need that comparison. Well, joy is meaningless without pain. Exactly. I mean, in DBT, we talk about how emotion mind is 
actually helpful sometimes and effective sometimes. Like imagining experience, imagine experiencing a loss without feeling loss, without feeling grief, or imagine comforting someone you love without feeling intense sadness. It's just not going to happen. So all of those experiences, I would be robbed of those experiences if I took that pill. I mean, basically you're asking, if I gave you a pill and you took it and it would disable you, do you want it? (laughs) (laughs) No. Yeah. So this separateness, this duality, it creates tremendous value. Although painful, that serves us in so many different ways. One, it helps us to connect with each other through empathy. So we're therapists. If I could not feel and understand what they are feeling, I would become disabled. I would lose that ability to connect. But we also have now the perspective that everything is temporary. And feeling that pain has allowed us to evolve. We've become more wise. We've learned things. We've overcome that. And it's enhanced other areas of our life. So you cannot love fully without loss. You cannot appreciate the moment with peace. Just just imagine we have so many moments that are peaceful. We're not under any threat. Right now, this is a great moment. We're all at peace right now. We're able to, we're all warm you know, we have a microphone in front of us. We're able to talk about these rather sophisticated and complex issues, right? And relatively safety. We're not in a war-torn area. We're not in famine. We're not being abused or neglected. There's no violence. And so without perspective, you can't appreciate that moment. So, you, But you'd have to connect with the idea of what it would be like to be in a violent situation, or to be freezing cold and hungry in order to appreciate the safety and the peace of this moment. We require that. And that's why it's so dangerous, in my opinion, in American culture, Western society, to communicate these normal responses and reactions as, as illnesses, as disorders. It's very, very nefarious. Anyone who views it otherwise is not thinking critically. You know, they are just following protocol. And what is so upsetting is when somebody who may not be psychologically minded, I mean, I don't need my medical professionals to be philosophers and therapists. I don't. But I also want you to have some degree of humility and understand that uh, just because you're told something to be true and you're following a protocol or step-by-step process and you're told that it's best available evidence... Step back and think with a little bit more sophistication and and complexity. It's not so simple. Now, maybe working the assembly line works for you and it makes everything predictable. And there's a lot of bright people who are doing that work and they save lives. But when you act outside your own boundaries of training and competence, that's when harm is done. And those ideas have just bled in to a society that's become secular and devoid of spirituality and, and depth of culture and learning from ancestors. And it's become one of materialism 
and selling messages that are ultimately going to lead you to feel empty. And then you're, once you feel empty, they're, sold, they're selling you something new, that next pill to try to change you. But remember, it's always clear you're always broken. There's always something wrong with you in some way. It's selling codependency on the system. I, I hope that the next phase is a return to common sense because all the things we talked about are just very intuitive and common sense. And if a plan for what would help with feeling better doesn't make sense, we should be allowed to question it no matter who said it. And nothing ever made sense to me of, uh, you know, a, a pill is going to cure the issue when the issue is going on or I'm having a lot of trouble in, in relationships and feeling connected. I feel horrible about who I am as a person. Um, you know, I feel like my career is going away. Like, mm-hmm. All those things, it makes absolutely zero sense that that's going to be something that a pill that it's not connected in any way to any identifiable medical illness is, is going to cure. The common sense things often get poo-pooed because they're seen as not scientific or medical enough, but they are. <laughs> yeah. uh, like love, connectedness, purpose, they at a gut level intuitively you know, and you can ask any 90-year-old who's looking back on their life and talking about the things that matter the most, and they'll, they'll say similar things. There, there is a wisdom in there that goes beyond uh, what we're told. I heard a quote recently. I want to say it was Buddha. I could be wrong. <laughs> I'll need to be fact-checked, but it was something to the effect of enlightenment is a revelation in the obvious. I really liked that these things that are so simple and then when you touch it it like smacks you in the face and you're like is that really it it's like oh it is <laughs> so let's transition we've been talking philosophically and i think we've done a pretty nice job of of highlighting some of the cultural problems that exist but let's talk practical because we do work in a system and we do work in a healthcare system so people are going to be referred to us where they are engaging in behaviors that jeopardize their health and well-being and they are going to be in episodes or stuck in places in their life where they're hopeless and they have quite you know degree of despair practically speaking then what are the skills that are required of a modern day mental health professional to then really be able to facilitate change because i did you know, bring up concerns about the science base of our approach and the, you know, the focus on the, the randomized clinical controlled trial. But at the other end of the spectrum are the, the wild, wild west that exists in the mental health field where anything goes and uh, somebody can just come in who might be having multiple problems, suicidal, eating disorder, starving themselves, and the therapist is nothing but a passive listener without any strong science base to actually drive how they how they treat somebody it's just uh their own intuition and just thinking that being able to talk that in itself is a cure so what are the practical strategies combined with some of this philosophy that are really kind of the necessary components to recovery i think the the first step is you need someone who's actually like a really good active listener and when I think of active listener, I don't think of someone who's just passively kind of just letting you speak, but not even thinking for themselves about what you're saying or reacting in any way. I don't think it's like that. But I think an active listener is someone who's like actually actively looking to understand why it makes sense. You 
feel the way you feel at this point in your life right right now. And that's through, I think, a deep belief that there is a reason first. I think they have to have that. Uh, I think there's a curiosity that we have to bring into what's going on for that person. Um, I think there's an empathy and a caring that comes into that. And I think that's the first thing. You have to be next to someone where you're like, I can actually see why you are feeling this way in your life right now. Um, I don't think that's where it stops. I think that's where unhelpful therapy could potentially stop. You just spin in circles around that. I, I think the other pieces are there are things to be questioned. you got to think critically about some of those things. So if someone's feeling really hopeless, um, some of the things we've been talking about philosophically is maybe there are other perspectives on that. Maybe this period of intense distress, there is some rays of hope in that. Maybe what we believe is that there are going to be times in life when it feels that way, but those can also be very transformative times in someone's life, and who knows what it's going to be like in a few weeks, in a few months, in a, in a few years. Uh, some of the people who are the most remarkable people, I think, have gone through the most suffering at times in like huge stretches of their life. The inventor and founder of DBT was one who struggled with borderline personality disorder, suicidality for big stretches of her life, and she created something that was incredibly beautiful and helpful out of that experience. So I, I think there's a step of being able to then also build, build a sense of hope and figure out how can you take all the pain and suffering that currently exists, understand it, and find ways to uh, transform it into some sense of meaning, purpose, or way of moving forward. Yeah, what comes to mind as you were speaking, Riz, is this concept of balance. Again, we have to balance validation and caring and compassion with some sort of change strategy. So helping our clients make those necessary changes in their lives, whether that's teaching them certain skills or uh just introducing mindfulness and being able to recognize their thoughts and feelings as that thoughts and feelings, there has to be some sort of change component introduced. Yeah. Riz, as you were speaking, I was thinking like in terms of active listening, having a deep presence and I'm just reflect reflecting on when I was a new therapist and how on the outside it might've looked like I was really present mm -hmm. and yet I always had or tried to have the next thing I was going to say teed up in my head. And I think that's natural. I was anxious. I didn't know what the fuck I was doing. And yet it's like I had one foot in the room and one foot in my mind. And I, people, I think people can generally tell when, when you're in a room with someone and they're deeply focused on you versus when they're like half in. And so, yeah, I think that active listening with that really deep presence of, and I think that that has increased in myself if I, as I've developed more faith in myself where I don't, I know I don't have to know the next quote perfect thing to say because one, that doesn't exist. And two, like it, I'm just going to start talking and what comes out of my mouth is, is going to be what's right for the person in that moment. And so that I think has been a really interesting development for me and really helpful. And yeah, just thinking about some of these treatment developers like Marsha Linehan and Steve Hayes, who was one of the creators of ACT, suffered from debilitating panic attacks. Like, I don't think that's a coincidence that these folks had so much suffering and what currently existed 
didn't work that they then were able to develop these really beautiful treatments, I think is amazing. Um, other core things like really diffusing from the narrative in one's mind. I, I encourage folks to question everything. Like, how do you know what you know? How do you know that you're depressed? How do you know that your depression won't allow you to do X, Y, and Z? And just really diffusing from Agnes, like you said, just that narrative bullshit in your mind. To piggyback off this, and I think I was really blessed to start off my career treating eating disorders because my research and my experience exposed me to people who were going to die if they didn't make changes. So what I really got good at was motivating change and creating an action-oriented therapy. And from a practical skill-building standpoint, I have kind of undervalued talking and I overvalue action. And so if my talking and my experience with my clients doesn't in any way promote change behaviorally in order to way to change that their life their their lives um, in some respects those conditions that they're experiencing are potentially life-threatening could be severe anorexia binging and purging multiple times a day use of substances that the next time you use it could potentially even be your last well, I always felt in, in some ways that I, I would be doing my clients a disservice if I wasn't able to communicate the priority of making those changes right now and the seriousness of the condition because often in their lives they didn't always understand how serious it could be. And I think I'd learned to do it because naturally I'm, it, it comes from a place of concern and, and compassion and I think people always saw that in my eyes. So I learned to prioritize certain things over others even though someone might have a, a history of, of, of a lot of pain and you know that at some point we need to be able to get there and help them process and cope with that, we would never be able to do it if they were in the midst of an eating disorder or substance abuse or they wanted to end their lives. So the practically speaking, you have to have the skills and the ability to motivate change and set up behaviors that are going to slowly going to get them to be able to make those changes because it's not like I tell you to do something and you just do it. You don't just stop binging and purging. You learn skills. You slowly get there. You kind of shape that. You might be binging and purging three times a day, every day. And then before you know it, it's just three times a week. And that in itself has prevented a lot of harm. But you had a deliberate therapy that was monitored and that you were involved in. And there was a seriousness to it. And you found a way to connect and motivate and that is missing from our, generally speaking, from what is general talk therapy or mental health treatment. And the lack of skills in that area force too many into psychiatry. As if that there is going to be some magical pill that makes those changes. And if, if, as, if as a psychologist or mental health professional, you don't begin to establish a diverse skill set and a diverse background in reading literature, you're going to be limited. You're just only going to know what you know. You're not going to know what you don't know. And so many people, and this goes back to the specialization world that we're, we're in, they, they're so afraid of stepping outside of their formal education. And your formal education is extremely limited. If you are not growing 
from that very basic limited education that in no way probably served you in the need in the way that you didn't certainly isn't meeting the investment that many people are having to make throughout undergrad and even postgraduate if you don't continue to grow your education through critical analysis and thought and a love of learning then you're going to be limited you're going to see each client through the lens of only what you know and anything outside of that you'll feel limited and you will not you will not challenge those from other professionals because you were taught that that is your lane well you do that you're going to be limited in your ability to make change i think what happens when we when there is that feeling of being limited in what we know is it's a pretty human reaction to then adhere very tightly to something as if it's the right way to do things because it's all you got. So, so many expert mistakes, I think, come from that. You only have the lane of what you know. This thing doesn't fit, so something must be wrong with that individual or you need to do more of the same and just do it better (laughs) somehow. (laughs) So you don't even like think to look outside the scope of things. And I think that that philosophy is limited as a whole. And in psychology, that's often been being very techniquey. Mm-hmm. Um, that the knowledge you have is to do these interventions this particular way, um, and that's it. And what that misses is the the principles behind them, what even works about them, and that the only way it works to be motivational, like you were saying with a client with you know is in a life and death situation, is probably if they can see that there's a huge genuine iceberg of caring that it's resting on of what you're even saying to them and that's not a technique that's not anything that's taught that you read in a book that's like Mm -hmm. a life philosophy who you are as a person and how much do you actually believe the things that you're saying i don't know if we can fully actually believe what we're saying about things about emotions and connectedness and still kind of appease to other ways of seeing things that are about numbing or suppressing emotions and say, I fully believe in this for you. Um, there's, there's just something that doesn't match up about that. And you have to do a, go outside your training to do that because that's not within your training, that you actually have to go and stand for what you actually believe in from an intuitive, experiential, wisdom kind of sense, not just a, a book sense. It's like we got to this place by questioning what we know clinging to unquestioned unquestioned beliefs is so dangerous because then you're just working off of a belief system and in terms of therapy you're not actually present with the person in the room and what they may need most so let's be critical of the of the training process how are psychologists therapists being trained nowadays Riz you probably (laughs) can speak to this um, because you're our training director and you are interacting with our students. And then, you know, Dr. Hannon, you are in academia right now. So I'll, I'll say a little bit about what I commonly see with some of our students coming in and a little bit about my experience, but I can't speak for all programs uh, as a whole. I think that there's there still is this Again, conveyor belt kind of the image that keeps coming to mind when it comes to training in certain ways because you're trying to train a large group of students on how to do a treatment that should be approached with humility about the science as a whole. But to 
be a, be a teacher in a program and go through and try to actually provide skills, there's an overemphasis on uh, techniques and, and protocols uh, with a lack of emphasis on critical thinking, being flexible, being present in the moment, and other experiential things. Um, in general, I find classroom learning kind of lends itself to that. It's, it's much harder to be experiential in classroom learning with 20, 30, whatever it is, kids in, in a class. So what people come up with, come in with, is often a lot of intellectual ideas and psychological terms and jargons and explanations for things and protocols, and, and it's, um, it's intellectual chaos. <laughs> is that why every single cover letter looks exactly the same that I get here? <laughs> I think so. You can, you can see the mass brainwashing. There is. And every single term around evidence-based practice and multiculturalism and diversity and inclusion. Like it's the same language. They're Checking robots. The yep. Yep. They're robots. No one stands One, you know, Every once in a while, you'll get this genuine cover letter, which we have from one of our externs who I have the pleasure of supervising. I'm like, whoa, who is this person? Right, this is an actual human being and not a robot. <laughs> a free thinker. What? <laughs> I don't know if how did they get? I want to look back at our cover letters. <laughs> I know. Here. I'm so curious. <laughs> I don't want to look at it. How I did they mind. avoid the Matrix? <laughs> <laughs> this is a divergent. <laughs> what is that? There's this cultural thing of um, people are often coming in with this idea of what they should do and what the right thing to do is, and so you're coming into trying to learn how to do therapy almost like there's an imaginary supervisor over your shoulder who's ready to wag their finger at you. <laughs> and then you can't be intuitive. You can't be in a moment like actually present with someone and truly validating. You're trying to be validating. You're, you're yep. doing what you should do in this moment and saying, um, you know, I understand how difficult it's been, but it's just words and a technique that you're using. It's not truly doing it because you fully believe in it, whether someone's watching or not. Um, and so that that part of training always got to me. It's just by its nature, at least my experience so far, it's it's evaluation, it's grades, it's techniques, it's protocols. The only things that can be evaluated are often things that are trained in that particular way. And, and so it's it's just a limited. Yeah, I call that brainwashed version a therapy bot. <laughs> <laughs> and therapy bot gets activated, especially when the trainee is anxious or uncertain about what to do next. So it's like, oh, therapy bot, validate. Yes, that sounds very hard for you. <laughs> Thera it's therapy speak. It's yeah. It, it's like automated. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, there's going to be like a most. There's going to be some AI kind of program to to give you therapy with the like optimal <laughs> algorithm. Yeah, they're already experimenting <laughs> with that. And people make fun of it about therapy all the time, right? It's just yeah. therapy is someone going to like. Well, how does that make you feel? <laughs> right? and, and it's not like I don't ask my clients about how they're feeling when it's relevant. Yeah. It's just not done in that robotic kind of way. I had a, uh, a, a client who was going through some serious things and uh, failed every other kind of treatment. You know, one of those goes through all these other therapists. You have this long litany of going to see other people. And once this person started to improve, I wanted to learn, okay, what did I do differently? Mm -hmm. You know, what... what why did this work for you and others didn't? And she said, you know, from the beginning, it was, it was different. You didn't sound like everyone else. You sounded like a, a human being. I had all these horrific traumatic experiences and you didn't want to get into the details with me. It's like I, I had all these other people 
who, uh, you know, were just curious about how that happened and why that happened. Yet all these other areas of, other areas of my life, I was suffering. I was abusing drugs. I was horribly anorexic. And you only cared about my health. While other people, were like it was like voyeuristic. And so, you know, people are going to be able to see through that. They're going to see if you're genuine. They're good, you know, human beings are acutely attuned to that. They're going to know if you're real. And that's why it's so important for me to have the right people work here. I'm not interested in a therapy bot. And I'm not interested in people just working a job. Go, you know, if you want to do that, go do some other job. This is a, a way of life. This is a what they call dharma, life purpose. Like I want people who are working here because this isn't work. You you are blessed with the opportunity to be able to do life-changing work. So I need people who are genuine, caring people, not therapy bots. And that's what been some of my biggest challenges in being able to grow this practice to be honest with you. Mm-hmm. Um I think it's rare. What are you seeing with this generation in, in university settings? Yeah, it's been fun. Um, and just reflecting on how I've taught certain courses like psychological diagnoses, it's so different how I'm teaching it now, how I taught it maybe five years ago, where now I think students come in and they have this expectation of, it is almost like a, a voyeurism. Like I'm going to learn about like these, radical things like schizophrenia and we're gonna like watch these clips and it's like we're gonna talk about these things and then I come in and I'm like this isn't what you think it is (laughs) this is all completely culturally manufactured Mm -hmm. we as a culture have decided that these one we've decided to call these certain behaviors abnormal or deviant and we've decided to pathologize them and we've decided to put a disorder on them and medicate them even though there's little to no evidence that there's this you know pure biological cause i mean everything has a biological base of or course, if that's even effective in in doing what it's meant to do exactly right and so i bring in just conversations from other cultures like the word schizophrenia doesn't even exist in other cultures and people who have visions or hallucinations are loved in their community and the community there's stress for sure but the community will rally around them because they have the belief that this is a special person this is a healer this is a shaman this is someone who has a gift who can help our community our tribe so yeah it's I got my student evaluations back yesterday and I haven't looked yet because I'm a little nervous because I think a lot of people in the class were like, yes, I'm bored. And other people think I'm insane and that's fine. Um, But yeah, just really, I, I think helping them, encouraging them to question, like, how did we come to this state? And it's, it's not what you think it is. And when I, t- I taught an upper division seminar called clinical psychology, and that was really just a seminar on how to critically think. Um, and we read a lot of RCTs and research in the field and just spent hours analyzing it. And I remember I, I asked for mid-semester feedback, and some students were like, I'm really enjoying this course, but like, what are the main points that I should be taking away? (laughs) (laughs) Wow, they missed the point. (laughs) I'm like, you get to decide that. 
right? But like it's, the students are so conditioned to think like, I need to learn this checklist of things and I'll know it and then I'll go on my way. And it's like, oh, no, 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 no. That's not what we're doing here. Because, you know, life is about achievement of something. And once you achieve it, then you're good. <laughs> you've, you know, you're a good person and you can feel good about who you are and you've checked that next box and then you've, you've climbed the next ladder and you get the praise from your family. And then you can, you know, at cocktail parties, tell people what you do. But the truth of the matter is, like, um, I don't know about you. I mean, I'm I'm at a stage in my my life that I am like 100% completely and utterly bored with the average person. Um, who are what I mean by that is programmed, and just repeats the same messaging and program over and over again, and has no independent and critical thinking, and uh, are conditioned by their culture that I'm craving some realness by somebody out there. And, and, you know, that's something, I, you know, decisions that I have to make in my life to be able to move forward. But I find that it's just rare. You know, it, it's just, it's rare and unique to find that type of person because we are so controlled by the, the messages. And uh, everyone has to be similar or the same. And there's such a fear of standing out. Um, and I think that's unfortunate. Thoughts? I feel like I feel like people get glimpses of it at times in their life if they have been in that programming for a long time. Like it's almost like you're underwater for so long and then you bring your head above air and you're like, oh, wow, I'm in water. How about, how about that? Didn't realize that. And I think for some people it happens in some like stereotypical times, right? People go through like a midlife crisis or something and they take it chance to look back and be like, why did I work so hard for all these particular things when this might not be the way that I actually want to be living, right? And you go through that crisis time and maybe hopefully come out of it different or transformed in some kind of way. I feel like I love working with teens because they're going through that at that age where they're questioning everything. They were told that this is what you should do. You, you go to school, you get really good grades. You're, that's the definition of success. Then you go for a job and they're like, why would I want to do a job I don't care about from nine to five to have a bunch of money and do, do what? Like, they, yeah. they almost see through the programming better because they haven't been so conditioned by it as, for as long as some adults. And that, that's refreshing. And it's such gaslighting because you, you go and you do all those things. You know, you, you, mm -hmm. you go up every single ladder, you achieve every step and then you live the way that you're told you're supposed to live. And then when it doesn't create any meaning for you and there's an emptiness that you're sitting with, now they're told you that you're broken, that there's something wrong with you. And if there's anything that's outside the narrative, well, now they even label that. Now you're, you know, a science denier. You're, you know, now you've missed, now you're communicating misinformation or you're a conspiracy theorist. So you're, you know, you're punished to think critically in any way. You're, you're punished to challenge the narrative or the authority. California just passed a, a, a bill that if you question the narrative on how COVID should be treated, this is medical professionals, that you can, um, you can be sanctioned and you could lose your medical license. And so that's the thing about like protocol-driven medicine. You have to follow the narrative of what the major medical and government associations are going to say is the best available evidence. And if you act outside of that, well, then you are acting outside the bounds of what they identify as science and you put your, your license at risk. So when you ask how we, we get ourselves to this point, it's through obedience. 
And it's through just following the narrative and the authority. And anyone who does stand out and does question the narrative, which we agree advances science and the discussion and values and each individual's right to make decisions for their best self-interest, you, you know, you're, you're provoked by fear. You know, there's the fear of stepping outside of that. And I think what I'm starting to be, you know, proud of here at Center for Integrated Behavioral Health, if I look back at anything that I kind of created, is at least now we have an environment where we're talking about things outside of what is the prevailing narrative. I'm certainly aware of where it's going to go because I'm doing this on social media platforms. Um, I was just invited to a, a conference for nurses, you know. I'm going to stand up in front of people and say, you know, giving these psychiatric drugs to developing brains is, uh, is a harmful intervention. You know, when you start beginning to talk about things that are outside the narrative, you put yourself out there to, you're vulnerable to, to criticism, and then you know, you're not going to really be able to defeat the, the argument. So the only way you can be able to kind of defeat the the, the new message or the alternative narrative is to take down the person. And that's scary. And I think when I say that, like I'm bored with people, I think people are ultimately living in too much fear because they're afraid to step outside of what is the established narrative and they, they care too much about what you think. Right? They don't want to be rejected. And that's part of something that we are just kind of ingrained uh, both genetically and through evolution. You know, we're, we're, we're tribal. And so it, it doesn't serve us well to offend others or to step outside the, the group because then you're not protected. And I just want to say real quick, like I, I hope I'm not coming off as holier than thou. Like I used to be a bot. I used to be very programmed. Oh, me too. <laughs> Roger knows. Uh, and uh, <laughs> yeah, it took stress and honestly trauma to, I think, force me to really question things. And I, I honestly wouldn't even call it trauma now because of the growth that's come from that. Um, but yeah, I think we all can relate to being in that programmed state. I definitely had an existential crisis at some point, yeah. which actually helped me. I got through that and I figured out exactly what I wanted my life to look like. And I think um, I'm naturally more reserved and introverted. So I've always felt this sense of myself, like even in my training, I did not go along with what everyone else was saying, but I was scared. I was scared to speak out. So I just like found my own people and, you know, I've created a community like here at work, like at home with my spouse, with my friends who share the same ideas. But I think as my confidence grew, like you were saying, Susan, I think I can speak more fully to that now and, and use my voice literally and be more vocal about these ideas. I resonate with that a lot. Yeah. Um, like that confidence in yourself and that faith in yourself where now I have the recognition that even if like, worst case happens, I lose my license, Lafayette fires me, I'll figure it out. Yep. Like I'll be okay. I think I, I resonate with what you said earlier about being like a passive absorber of things. Um, cause I didn't even think to question things before. So when I was in the bot phase, I don't think it was like fear of going outside of that. It wasn't even like an awareness that there was an outside of that to go. And then once you do start questioning, I think what's hard about it is then it leads you to places that really question big things. Cause then you start to think so many experts and smart people are 
so wrong right now about something and it's causing huge problems and has been happening for decades and then it becomes scary and uncomfortable Mm -hmm. (laughs) and then it's like well accepting that now it's starting to feel like the matrix or the twilight zone or something like that but if you really are going to be a critical thinker and question things at some point you can't ignore that even if it's such an uncomfortable alternative reality that it starts to open your mind to for me, the idea that everything is temporary has been completely freeing. Um, I think I'm going to get the tattoo, the world memento mori. I'm going to get that tattooed on me somewhere. Uh, remember, we will die. Remember, you will die. It's a Latin phrase. Um, because then you start thinking about things, everything. You know, everything gets thought about differently, right? Like, what is the purpose of living? Why are you here? Right? And I was listening to Deepak. Chopra, um, a book that he read, uh, I think something about seven spiritual laws or something like that. And he was talking about the idea of, uh, you know, living purpose. And there's, a, there's an emotional experience, a connection to when we are living that purpose. And when that happens, there could be like the absence of time. You could be in like flow. It feels right. Uh, it feels good. And when you're not, right, you might be in discomfort or dis-ease. And sometimes if you can just get out of the programming, which I think we all agree that meditation is the path to do so, you get to be connected to what that purpose is, that sense of spirit. or And are you willing to do that, even if it means your life will not be the way that you imagine it or wanted it to be. If it threatens your sense of safety, security, comfort. And those are the deep philosophical kind of questions I think we all have to ask ourselves because I honestly believe that we are here to evolve. We're here to evolve spiritually and grow. So for me, am I willing to give up everything I have, those comforts, in order to live by what I believe is right? Right. I don't know if you ever know until you're really challenged with that, right? Um, Because the idea of hurting other people is so aversive to me or something happening to my family, you know, is so scary to me. Um, However... Throughout history, anyone who's made any sort of difference in being able to evolve humanity uh, had to go against the grain and had to step out and be courageous enough to say what others are unwilling or even to be persecuted or harmed in some way. And so you, you ultimately admire that sense of spirit and, and, and purpose. And that's where I think this field has to go. There has to be the willingness and the courageousness to step out of what the narrative is, to look at what the statistics are telling us, and to be able to accept the painful reality that the current constructed mental health industry creates harm. I believe that. Since the DSM and the drug therapies for depression, there's a thousand-fold increase in depression, disabilities increase, suicide has increased. No one can tell me 
that what we have done as a mental health field has advanced our quality of life. And so I want to close the podcast on this. We can jump into a time machine and we go into deep into the future where we have become evolved beings and a psychologist in the mental health field has really advanced our society. Uh, tell me what is being emphasized. What does effective mental health support and treatment look like? And maybe we can talk about how we can get there. I guess I'm just imagining an environment where there would be so much connection and Riz, like you said, not necess- it doesn't have to be connection to another person, even though that would be lovely, but connection to nature because we are nature. There really is no separation there. Um, but there would be so much connection that there possibly wouldn't be this need for this expert in mental health or this expert in psychology and there still would be pain like there still is pain and suffering absolutely but there isn't the judgment attached to that pain where that people are willing and more comfortable sitting with that maybe that's way too idealistic but that's just what I envisioned as you asked that Yeah, what came to my mind was an integration of mind, body, and soul. So we're not just focusing on psychology, but we're emphasizing spiritual practices and nutrition and things like yoga and exercise. Some way to integrate everything that goes into quote-unquote mental health. I haven't done a vision board yet. Maybe I should have. <laughs> I think that um, a lot of what you guys said I overlap with. Um, that it being about creating senses of connection, love, purpose, a return to common sense. Um, common sense does include things like moving our bodies in ways that feel good, uh, putting what feels good in our bodies, like just to return, I guess, to what we know is wisdom and not all the clutter that's come on top of it. And honestly, a good start would be just doing less harm. You know, if we could at least do that, then there could be some opportunities for what I think people common sense and intuitively kind of know are tried and true things that might help change uh, other things and help us feel well. So, um, it's murky. I hope that picture becomes clearer <laughs> over time, but th- those ideals somewhere mixed in there. I have a dream. <laughs> <laughs> so my I have a dream speech. I imagine, and this is more, you know, practically speaking on how to get there, that I, I imagine a true integrated health system similar to what Agnes was speaking about, about integration of mind, body, and soul where we do create environments where there are strong professionals who are therapists who know how to guide people and have a high tolerance for emotional discomfort. And 
can connect with clients in order to heal and face trauma or overcome fear and anxiety or to motivate and boost people in order to make real positive changes. But you could also go onto another floor of the building and sign up for, you know, a yoga class with other people who might have gone through something similar. And there's a safety and a connection there. Or you might be able to schedule an appointment with a nutritional psychiatrist, which is safely tapering you off the toxic pharmaceuticals that have been in your body and replacing it with nutrients and either hopefully whole foods or, or supplements that can help regain that balance of the body. Or you might walk somewhere else and be able to sign up for a, you know, a Saturday morning nature hike in a, in a region just that, that community members have decided that we want to get away from screens and we're looking for other people who are just going to connect and, and do those things. Or I might uh, sign up for a transcendental meditation or a mindfulness-based group. And they're all cost-effective. And we've been able to work with the insurance co companies to transform from a sick care system to one that's of preventative health, that people can make a real investment into their health and lifestyle, and we can bring down the cost of insurance because we're not trying to keep everybody sick all the time, and we're investing in, in living. And so you come and you enter into a place that is here to genuinely restore health and can be promoted to ideas and things that are actually curative that are more common sense related, but then we can also access science that is really like advancing. I, I don't know if you've looked into heat exposure or cold exposure and what that does with antidepressant effects. And obviously there's a lot we can learn about neuroscience. I mean, we all feel good after an exercise session. So there are things that are happening. We feel better when we have sun exposure, when we connect with nature. Uh, if you go and do a, a sauna, you might, you know, you walk out of there and then your immunity's boost and boosted and it has an antidepressant effect for a period of time, you know, where we can learn more about the foods that we eat that are really healthy and restorative. We can make substantive change and not this constant put a Band-Aid on a gaping wound and put crap and toxicity into people's bodies and be on social media and disconnected from each other on phones and screens because that's just a recipe for continued emotional distress. Who wants to live that way? Sounds like a good dream. <laughs> do you think we can get there? Going to do everything possible to at least move in that direction. Sounds so reasonable, doesn't it? Right? It, it does sound like when we're talking about restoring health, doesn't it sound reasonable? Logical? So how much of what, we, what we're doing is just insanity? You know, definition of insanity, doing the same thing over and over again, expecting different results? It, it sounds like trying to move a very big ship to head in a different direction, and you can kind of see that it makes sense to go in that direction. And us doing that or working towards that is like one shift of the rudder. Mm -hmm. But, man, there's like a whole culture and society that we're trying to affect and bring along for that uh bring along for that ride and seeing things differently mm -hmm. 
and do I think as sensible and as common sense and as simple as it seems it could be? Um, I do believe that, and I also believe it's going to take a lot of people and energy and effort to move a whole group in society into a radically different way of thinking. Agree. Sounds like a good spot to wrap up. Uh, I want to thank the three of you for this really illuminating conversation. I think it was honest. I think it was genuine. Really do appreciate all three of you uh, having you here as leadership at the Center for Integrated Behavioral Health. Um, your incredible role models and in your own rights with everything that you do individually. Um, really impressed by what you bring to your to your careers. Love to have you on the Radically Genuine podcast consistently because each one of you have been on previously and we certainly I think we've gotten incredible feedback for that. Um, and when we talk about the growth of that vision, it starts in steps. And I think a lot of the things that we're, we're doing kind of individually and trying to influence, whether it's through social media or through its, its training or just some of the ideas, or we're at least, we're at least laying a, a, a framework. You know, there's so many other things, like obviously when it, it comes to a system. So like insurance, and we have to partner with insurance providers in order to change that system. These changes require, you know, money, finances. There's so many different factors to it. But I think the ideas are really starting to grow here at our center. And we're going to be giving and providing our, our therapists with a lot of tools to be able to have these conversations with their, with their clients. And some of the things that we're doing as far as like parent training and providing education around the, the poor science around psychiatric drugs and trying to talk more about nutrition and mindfulness and cultural factors. I think it's a path. And so it's an honor to work with all three of you and I really appreciate you being on the show today. Thank you. Yeah, Thank thanks you. for having us. Listening to a podcast may be therapeutic, but it is not therapy. Always seek the advice of your mental health professional. If you are in a crisis or you think you have an emergency, call your doctor or 911. If you are considering suicide, call 1-800-273-TALK to speak with a skilled, trained counselor. If you found this podcast interesting, please share it with a friend, subscribe through your podcast app, and engage with us through our social channels. And if you are concerned about a friend or family member, reach out. The six magic words, I was just thinking about you, may make their day. Thank you for listening.